Alright, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallama wa baraka ala sayyidina wa maulana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima alamtana wa zidna min fadlika ilman wa ta'alima innaka ala kulli shay'in qadir wa ba'd. Alright, Alhamdulillah. We are in lesson 6 of module 5 on the Fardain knowledge concerning Salat. And we've been studying the Ahkam, the Fiqh of Salat according to the structure and principles within the legal school of Imam Abu Hanifa Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And between now and Isha, we actually have a lot to cover and I'm not entirely sure if we'll finish it all. But this should be, uh, out of all of the classes on Salat, uh, hopefully a very informative one that gives you a sense of the breadth and depth of the Islamic tradition in regards to Salat. Now in the previous classes we've covered a number of things. We've talked about the conditions for the obligation of prayer, the cause for the obligation of prayer, meaning the entrance of the time, and the conditions for the validity of prayer. And then we talked about the pillars and the obligations. Who can remind us of the difference between a condition and a pillar? Right. So the pillar, sorry, the condition is external to the salat and the pillar is inside of the salat. Right. So we talked last week about the pillars of the prayer and then we went into the obligations of the prayer and we said the obligations are the wajibat those things that are obligatory uh, noting the distinction in the Hanafi school between fard and wajib this epistemological difference now the basic difference in terms of consequences we mentioned last week that if you intentionally leave, leave something that's wajib in the prayer you're sinful if you do it on purpose, you have to repeat the prayer. And if you do it out of forgetfulness, your prayer is not invalidated, but you have to do the prostration of forgetfulness, which we'll cover uh, the next week or two. So today, inshallah, we want to look at the sunan of the salat. And these are the aspects of the prayer that we're very familiar with because they form all the, the smaller details in the movements and the things we say. So these emphasized sunnas are very numerous and in, depending on the book you study, sometimes they'll list them out as 51 or 18. It all depends and it's all different, the ways they express these things. So we want to go through them and just very minimal commentary and then look at some of the key issues that required detail. Alright, so the emphasized sunnahs of prayer. Going back to the beginning, we fulfilled the conditions and we have fulfilled the pillars and we fulfilled the obligations of the salat. What are those things inside of the prayer that are from the sunnah, that are emphasized, but not at the level of wajibat? Remember last week we described this Salat as kind of like a, a pyramid, where at the base you have the adab, 
the etiquettes which enhance and perfect the sunan. And the sunan enhance and perfect the obligations. And the obligations perfect and enhance the pillars. So each one is supporting the other. Now these emphasized sunnas, uh, we've discussed a lot of them. We'll go through this list. So before the opening takbir, to raise the hands to the ears. Very simple. We talked about that uh, and how that is done. Except for a woman for whom it is encouraged to raise her hands to the shoulders. We didn't mention last, last week or the week before. We just talked about the basis for raising the hands up to the ears and the basis for raising them up to the shoulders. We did not discuss any gender distinctions. We discussed that tonight and where that's from. So in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, the sunnah for men is to raise the hands up to the ears. And for women, it is the sunnah for them to raise it up to the shoulders. Does anyone know why that is the case? What is the reasoning behind that? Right, it's the issue of setr, right, of concealment. Everything that is more conducive to concealment and modesty becomes the default ideal in all of these postures, particularly for women. And we'll look into that in more detail towards the end of this. The next one is to keep the fingers slightly spaced apart and the palms towards the qibla, which means that your fingers are like this. They're not splayed out, nor are they tight together. And they're facing the qibla. You will see some people, they rush through the salat, they begin, they're doing this. You ever see that? It's like, Allahu Akbar. No, the sunnah is the hands, the palms, facing the qibla. Number three is the sunnah for the man to place right hand over the left hand below the navel, with the right hand over the top of the left hand, forming a circle with the little finger and thumb around the wrist, and for women to do so on her chest, underneath her breast. Okay, so let's look at these. The, we'll talk about the, where these differences of opinion come from at the second part of this class tonight. But the basic description given by the fuqaha is that the two hands, the right and the left, are tahtu surra, or beneath the navel. And the way they describe it is where the right hand is going on top of the left hand with the pinky and the thumb of the right hand circling the left, holding it below the navel. So if you look at it from this angle, the pinky and the thumb basically interlock here. And this is according to the Hanafi school. And this is for men. It's not in an artificially lowered position. It's in a natural position below the navel, uh, interlocked in this manner. And this is the sunnah for men. And for women, it is for the hands to be on the chest. But by chest, it doesn't mean up here. It doesn't mean like this. It means beneath the breast. So basically like this. And the interlocking is not mentioned. It's not the case. It's just the hands like this. Uh, beneath the breast. That's number three. After that comes the uh, uttering the opening supplication, what they call the thana. Who knows the thana? Who can read the thana for us? 
Very well. Louder. Uh, very good. That is the thana. And that is the preferred dua for opening in the Hanafi school. Does that mean that's the only opening? No. There are others. There are other prophetic duas. And there are even different opinions about how preferred or even not preferred different ones are. But this is the basic one. After that, it is a sunnah to utter the ta'awudh in the first rak'ah only for reciting the Qur'an. What is the ta'awudh? A'udhu billahi rajim So that's only in the first rak'ah. You wouldn't do it in the others. Number six, to utter the basmala, bismillahir rahmanir rahim before the fatiha in every rak'ah. This would be sunnah. And to say Ameen after the Fatiha and to say Rabbana Lakal Hamd after rising from bowing. Those are actually two, so two joined under one. And number eight, to utter the above silently. So in the Hanafi school, like the Madiki school too, we don't say the Ameen out loud. Now in the in the Hanbali and Shafi'i schools they do, and we'll look at why. But it's silent after the Fatiha is recited. Uh, the same thing for Rabbana Lakal Hamd. Other emphasized sunnahs of the prayer include saying the takbirs when going into bowing and prostration, as well as when rising. So when when a person is getting up from sitting. So basically they say Allahu Akbar as you switch from one posture to the next. To say Allahu Akbar in those positions, in the changes, it is sunnah. Number 10, to recite the tasbih three times in both bowing and prostration. Subhana Rabbi al-A'la, or Subhana Rabbi al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi al-A'la, three times each. That is sunnah. You can do five, you can do seven, you can do more, but that is the sunnah. Number 11, to keep the feet while standing about four fingers apart. Now, read this carefully. Is he describing, this is of course coming from, this is coming from a few different texts. Uh, most of this is from Nur al-Idah. Is this describing the feet of the person by themselves or the feet with their neighbors? Which one do you think it is? When you're praying with others. Because if you say this is when you're by yourself, that means it's, it's your feet should be that close together, four fingers apart. Right? That's, not, that's not what it's saying. What it means is the ideal is that when you are praying next to others, that there's that space. Now people sometimes have a problem with that because they read certain hadith without understanding the fundamental rules of Arabic. They read the hadith which says, Al-Ka'bu bil-Ka'bi wal-Mankab bil-Mankab, straighten the rows foot to foot, right? Shoulder to shoulder, foot to foot, or ankle to ankle. And they understand that to mean they should be jamming. Well, I'm exaggerating a bit, although some do that. Uh, they should be physically in contact with the foot, ankle, and shoulder of their neighbor on both sides. And we say that this is not an accurate understanding of the hadith, because when the Prophet ﷺ says, Al-Ka'bu bil-Ka'b, the ba here, this ba does not necessarily mean physical contact, right? It, can, it means being adjacent to, but not necessarily 
pressed up against. Because in Arabic, if you use this preposition ba, it, it can just mean adjacent to and not always pressing. If I say marartu bi Rahman, I pass by Abdul Rahman. I use B. Does that mean that I've passed by and rubbed against you? No. It just means I pass by you. So this is the explanation for that. Uh, also the ulama mentioned that if a person keeps adjusting their foot to rub against the next person and every time the one person moves they move more, this can actually invalidate the prayer because of excess movement. Excessive movement. That can invalidate the prayer. So Oh yeah, not to mention how it bothers other people. Uh, I know of one sheikh. Someone tried to do this to him. He was, he was in his late 70s. And a uh, very prestigious, well-known sheikh. Known around the world. And someone pressed their foot into him like this. And he lifted his foot and he stomped on the man's foot. And this guy moved his foot away. So, anyhow. Alright. So... Uh, I didn't intend to go that long into this issue. Uh, number 12, uh, among the sunnahs of prayer, to place the hands on one's thighs when sitting, such that the fingertips are parallel to one's knees without grabbing the knees. Um, basically, the natural position. You just have your hands rested there. Number 13, to recite the Fatiha in the last two rak'ahs of a four rak'ah prayer, and in the third rak'ah of Maghrib. Uh, so they, they make this distinction because in the Hanafi school, if you didn't recite it in the last two rak'ahs or the final third rak'ah of Maghrib, it, you are omitting a sunnah, you're not omitting a wajib. But if you omit it in the first two of a four rak'ah prayer, what are you, you're omitting something that's wajib. So this becomes a problem. Um, number 14, to send salat upon the Prophet ﷺ in the final sitting. Now there's actually a difference of opinion uh, in the schools about this issue. Uh, and there's a difference of opinion about uh, various issues regarding salatu ala nabi And if you have to repeat the sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, each time you hear his name mentioned, or just once, outside of Salat, of course. But that's all dealt with in more detailed uh, studies of the method. Uh, number 15, to point with the right index finger with saying, La ilaha, and lowering it down with illallah. So you're actually circling the fingers slightly, like this, and you raise the index finger and then you lower it, right? So this is called ishara, and you always see different ways of doing this, and we'll explain where those differences come from and why. All right, we have two more. To supplicate afterwards using words that do not resemble human speech so as not to invalidate the prayer. This means dua not found in the Qur'an and the Sunnah and that is possible to request for a human being. So the Hanafi school is quite strict with regards to the, the nature of the dua you make in the Salat. You see, in some of the other schools, if you were in sajda and you said, Oh Allah, help me to...
to get that car that's on sale. This is a dunyawi dua. This would not be allowed in the Hanafi school. In the Hanafi school, they say the duas cannot resemble human speech. They can't be the things you would be saying to other people. I want to buy that car. Right? I need help in getting that car. It would have to be matters of the hereafter, matters of deen, matters that you do not request uh, other human beings with. So, uh, basically, the guideline is the dua should be matters of the akhirah, of the hereafter, uh, and not matters of dunya. Um, in other schools, it's more lenient. And number 17, to turn one's head right and left with the closing salams. So these are the basic sunan of prayer. And one of the things you'll notice here in the beginning is the distinction between men and women in some of the prayer postures. And I wanted to look at this in a little bit of detail so that we have clarity and we understand where they're coming from when they mention these differences. Now, we can look at differences between men and women, gender differences in the prayer postures, looking at standing, looking at bowing, looking at sajda, and looking at sitting. In each of those postures, there are differences between how men and women do them. And this is not based on anyone's qiyas. This is not based on anyone's opinion that has no basis from the tradition without any basis in the early generations. There's a basis for this. So let's look at those differences first and then look at the justification, where it comes from. So looking at standing, as you see in this picture, the we notice the difference between men and women in standing is that a man places his right hand over his left below the navel, whereas a woman will place her right hand over her left hand on her chest underneath her breast. So basically this position. As far as bowing is concerned, when bowing, men clutch their knees with the hands and spread the fingers. And they keep the legs straight without bending the knees, uh, unless they have, you know, they have flexibility issues. Obviously, those are the exceptions, but ideally, the knees are not bent. And they bend over fully such that the head is even with the bottom, yet without raising or lowering the head. That's the description of rukur, basically. But for women, when they are in rukur, they bend just enough that the hands reach the knees and they place them on the knees without clutching them and they keep the fingers together slightly bend the knees and keep the elbows pressed against the body uh, you don't need to overthink this just think of it being uh, more delicate and gentle and with the elbows coming in you're not flaring the legs out or the elbows out as a woman in rukur it's not a posture done in that in that manner because every posture uh, difference between men and women is based on the idea of satr, the idea of concealment and modesty, and maximizing uh, modesty in those postures for women. So that's the basic difference in bowing. Now when we come to sajda, men 
will keep the abdomen at a distance between the thighs and the elbows uh, away from the side, slightly out, and the arms will be off of the ground, unless it's crowded, of course. But for women, when they are in sajda, they are keeping the limbs close together, and even the abdomen is closer to the thighs, and the forearms are laid out on the ground. So this is a very distinct posture in, of sajda from the posture of sajda for men. The idea is that the body is more closely drawn together. The knees are closer to the abdomen, uh, or the knees closer to the chest, the elbows pushed in. You see with men, the hands would be at this level, the arms are coming out, there's a separation between the thighs and the abdomen. There is this, this expansion or this opening inside of that space. Whereas for women, it's more compressed, it's more concealed. That's the essential difference. Now the forearms issue is one where when we're in sajda as men, the, arm, the, the forearms are not touching the ground. We don't do that. But in the Hanafi school, for women, it is ideal, not wajib, but it's ideal that the hands are pressed in closer. So they would even be touching the ground. So it's like this, as opposed to like this with the forearms off. Now coming to sitting. Now when sitting, men sit on the left foot while it is laid out on the ground, while keeping the right foot propped up its toes towards the Qibla. Uh, we all know that basic sitting posture. Not everyone can do it, and many of those who can do it are not able to continue with it throughout their life for various reasons. But that is the ideal, and that is the posture of sitting for men. But while sitting in Salat, women sit in the position called Tawarruq which is to sit such that the backside rests directly on the ground rather than on the foot, keeping the right thigh over the left thigh with the left foot coming out from under the right leg, just as you see in this picture. That is tawarruk. And in the Maliki school, it's actually, that's the way you sit in every posture, in every sitting, for every rakah. That's the ideal. And the Shafi'i school, this would be how you sit in the final uh, sitting of the Salat. But this is the, in the ideal in the Hanafi school for women sitting in every sitting. To sit in this position called Tawarruq. As it is more conducive to uh, modesty and covering and closeness to the ground. So these are some of the basic differences between men and women in the prayer postures. And a lot of people who learn their basic fiqh quote-unquote back home will learn these differences. And they'll grow up observing these differences. And often when they come to North America and they're exposed to different viewpoints and understandings about salat and fiqh, they may lend their ear to people who say, this is all made up stuff. There's no basis for this. Where do they get this? How do they know that there's a distinction between men and women in the salat? This is all tahakkum, this is all qiyas, al-nas, and all of these kinds of facile arguments. But what I want to tell you is that the position of Imam Abu Hanifa and the Hanafi school regarding the gender differences in the prayer postures is not based on 
their guesswork or imagination. Their position is actually coming from the tradition, coming from Sahaba, coming from certain hadith of the Prophet and some of the athar uh, of the Sahaba. So let's look at some of these. Uh, I don't want to go through everything. It could be very long-winded. There's actually entire books written addressing this issue, showing that the basis in the Hanafi school for these gender differences is found in the hadith of the Prophet or some of the hadith, statements of Sahaba, statements of the Tabi'un, the earliest fuqaha. So the default, as we said, for the prayer postures for women is that is what is most conducive to modesty and concealment. This is our asal, our kind of default. And the basis for the gender differences in prayer, according to the Hanafi school, is the principle of satr, modest concealment, along with a number of narrations. And this is important to note because it's not just, oh, the idea of concealment as an ideal, and then we have these gender differences. No, there's an ideal, but there's also text. There's, there's proofs used. We have, for instance, the hadith in Abu Dawood from Yazid ibn Abi Habib. He relates the Messenger of Allah وسلم, passed by two women who were praying. And after they were finished, he said to them, when you prostrate, have your limbs touch each other, for women and men are different in these aspects. Very clear hadith in Abu Dawood. Imam Abu Hanifa himself relates in his own musnad, because he has his own hadith compilation. He relates in his own musnad from Nafi' who is the freed slave of Umar, right? Uh, Abdullah bin Umar, who says that Umar radiallahu anhu was asked how women performed prayer in the time of the Prophet sallallahu And he replied that initially they, they sat cross-legged but then they were ordered to draw their bodies close and lean to one side, which we call tawarruk. Wa'il ibn Hujar radiallahu anhu, he relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Ya ibn Hujar, when you pray, make your hands level with your ears, the takbir, and a woman should uh, raise her hands close to her bosom, in this area. This is in Tabarani. So these are three hadith. Ata, uh, he says, a woman should gather her hands as much as possible when standing in prayer. Right. So this is coming from the Tabi'un, and this is related by Imam Abdul Razak Sanani in his Musannaf. We also have the Athar of Sayyiduna Ali radiAllahu anhu, recorded by Abdul Razak as well. He says, when a woman performs prayer. She should draw her body close and keep her thighs close to her stomach. So the way we just described sajda is coming directly from an athar from Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu. And lastly, we have Ibrahim al-Nakha'i, one of the great early fuqaha. He said, when a woman is in prostration, she should draw her thighs to her stomach without raising her backside and without stretching her limbs out like a male. This is recorded by Imam Ibn Abi Shayba in his Musannaf. So these are early narrations showing you the basis for the gender differences. Is this a matter of absolute agreement among all of the fuqaha? 
not in every single posture and every single detail. But they are in agreement on the, the foundation, which is concealment as the ideal. Um, so this is the basis for it. And this is, of course, from the sunan of the prayer. If a woman were not to pray exactly in that manner, then it doesn't invalidate the prayer. According to the Hanafi school, they would be leaving what is ideal, but it's not the same thing as leaving an obligation. All right? So that's pretty much everything for the conditions of the Salat, the pillars of the Salat, the obligations of Salat, and the Sunan of Salat. According to the Madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa and Nu'man, radiallahu anhu, now, in the time that remains, I want to look at some comparative fiqh. When you, when you teach fiqh or when you learn fiqh, you don't want to learn fiqh as comparative fiqh from the very beginning. What does this madhab say? What does that madhab say? What's their reasoning? What's their uh, dalil? And how do we put it all together? That will just confuse you. In the very beginning, you want to learn a simple, solid structure. And you build on that structure. And as you build on that structure, you can learn the positions of the other schools, uh, where those, uh, those positions come from, and at least just to have an appreciation of our fiqhi diversity. So let's talk about some of those differences and why. I recall when I was a brand new Muslim, I was coming to the masjid and learning how to pray. And I would notice that from time to time, the person on my right would be doing things that the person on my left wasn't doing. And I would get confused, wondering, should I just copy what this person's doing on my right or what this person is doing? So sometimes I'm, oh, I'm raising my hands when this one does it because I don't know what I'm doing. Other times I'm not. And it was very confusing in the beginning because I didn't know where that came from. And if you grow up in a a part of the world where there's a, a dominant madhab that is studied and taught and it forms the basis of your Islamic education as a child and you remain in your own home country you may not be exposed to those differences but inevitably you will if you go for Hajj or Umrah at the very least and if you come to North America you most definitely will see those differences and it's important to know where those differences come from because it's never a question of who's right and who's wrong. Because I guarantee you, if you sit with a Shafi'i scholar, he can explain to you the reasonings within the Shafi'i school for their position and he will absolutely convince you that, they, that he's right. And you'll be convinced until you sit with a Hanafi scholar. And then he will explain to you the, the, the evidence and the arguments of the school, and he will convince you until you sit with a madiki. So it, it works like this. And alhamdulillah, these are differences of variation, and these are differences in what is preferred. These are not differences of uh, validity or invalidity, where this makes your salat batil if you don't do it, or 
this is wajib. No, none of these things are wajib. So let's look at some of these differences. All right. Um, the most obvious differences, we'll start from the very beginning. Uh, the raising of the hands or, or not raising the hands when going into rukur. Well, we all raise our hands when we initiate the prayer, but not all of us are raising the hands when we rise. So where does that come from and what's that about? The second issue is the position of the hands. We see hands below the navel, we see hands above the navel, we see hands even further up, and sometimes you'll even see hands by the side. Where does that all come from? We also have the issue of amin, saying it loudly behind the imam or silently behind the imam. And we have the issue of going into sajda. Do you go with your hands first or your knees first? And lastly, the raising of the finger during the tashahud. When are you raising it? Why do some raise it this way, some that way? Why do some move it and some do not? Where does all this come from? Well, before we look at these, we want to reiterate that there should be no arguing or fighting or debating about any of these things. They're all legitimate differences of opinion, uh, except for one issue which is a little problematic, I'll explain. Okay. Now we have the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, in Sahih Bukhari from Malik ibn Hawayrith radiallahu anhu. It's a famous hadith in which the Prophet وسلم, says, Sallu kama usalli. Pray as you have seen me praying. Some people have taken this hadith and misapplied it. And they believe, based on this hadith, that any hadith describing any minor detail of the salat is obligatory to follow. Because it says, pray as you see me praying. It indicates obligation. Therefore, it's all obligatory. That is not how the fuqaha understood this hadith, ever. The fuqaha, the jurist, understood this hadith to describe the pillars of the prayer. Meaning that structure that makes the prayer valid or invalid. And they link this hadith, pray as you see me praying, to the hadith of the man who prayed badly. Remember that hadith we discussed a couple of weeks ago. The hadith, uh, the one who prayed badly, he kept praying. And each time he prayed, the Prophet ﷺ says, go back and pray because you didn't pray. And then he says, well, this is all I know. And he described to him the manner of prayer describing Basically, the takbir, the fatiha, qiyam, rukur, rising, sajda, with the body content and at rest in each of the postures, the, the pillars of the prayer. So when the Prophet ﷺ says, Sallu kama pray as you see me praying, it refers to the, the, the pillars of the prayer, the foundation of the prayer. This hadith does not mean that the sunnas of the prayer are obligatory. The differences of opinion that we're looking at are only about what is preferable. Is this preferable to that? Some say this is preferable, some say this is preferable. That's all. No one's saying these things are obligatory. So looking at them one by one. Yeah, we'll see if we get through this. Um, the raising of the hands. So we call this Rafur al And I know in some parts of the world they'll have these 
big munadharas where people have stacks of books and they're shouting at the other side all about the issue of Rafa Yadain. Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so none of that is called for. None of that is called for. Because in the Hanafi school and the Maliki school, it is seen as preferable to not raise the hands except for the opening takbir. Allahu Akbar. In the Shafi'i and Hanbali school, it is preferable to raise them before and after Rukur. No one says that it's obligatory to raise the hands before and after Rukur. So the difference of opinion on this issue, it stems from how certain hadith are understood and also the early the practice of the early Ummah in Mecca and Medina and Kufa. Because you have scholars from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un uh, living in these lands and uh, disseminating their fiqh and those opinions become famous in those localities. So Imam Malik, for instance, his opinion is based on Amalu Ahlul Medina, the collective practice of the people of Medina. So as he sees it, Hundreds and hundreds of scholars from whom he has learned do not raise their hands. And they have taken from hundreds and hundreds of scholars of Medina. This is a blueprint, if you will, of the collective practice of the Sahaba. So it has a certain evidentiary weight, according to Imam Malik. That is his basis. Imam Shafi'i and Imam Ahmad base their view on narrations, certain hadith and the practice of the people of Mecca who followed the position of Abdullah bin Zubayr. Imam Abu Hanifa, who has the same view as Imam Malik, based his view on the practice of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Imam Ali. Al-Qama reports that Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said, should I not demonstrate the prayer of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for you? He performed the prayer and did not raise his hands except at the initial takbir. This is recorded by Imam Tirmidhi and in his Sunan. So either view is fine to practice and raising or not raising the hands does not affect the validity of your prayer. Uh, if you raise your hands, they should be facing the qibla with the palms facing. Uh, it shouldn't be any of this kind of stuff. No. And the only times you raise the hands in prayer for those who take that view. It's the opening takbir, everyone does that, before you go into rukur and rising from rukur. Now, as far as raising the hands at other times, such as when going from sajda to sitting, you'll, you'll see some people do that, rarely. This hadith, this is found in some hadith, but the indication of the hadith is that that practice is abrogated, mansukh. So, غير معبول بي, it's not acted upon. And this is why we don't just build our fiqh through random reading of hadith texts without knowing the big picture and putting everything together holistically. So that's more or less the basis for the difference. Now the position of the hands. There are three reported positions for the hands in prayer. Now we're looking at the four Sunni schools of Islamic jurisprudence. That of Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahumullah. 
there are three positions within those four schools. You have below the navel, this is the Hanafi and Hanbali view. Not just the Hanafis will do this, it's the Hanbalis too. Then you have the position of above the navel, which is the Shafi'i school and is a secondary view within the school of Imam Malik. Right? And the third view is Sadl or Irsal, which is that you have the hands by the side. This is the relied upon position in the school of Imam Malik. Right? So in the Hanbali school as well, you do have the view of above the navel. It's a secondary view. But the primary Hanbali position is below the navel. These are the three views. Now, can you think of a, a fourth posture for the hands? There is a fourth one, but it's not found in any of the four schools. That fourth posture is this one. That fourth posture, where are the hands? It, yeah, it's on the chest, but it's a very literal reading of the word chest, sadr. So, not a single imam from the great imams has ever understood the hadith about the hand placement to refer to this part of the chest. Imam al-Shafi'i, who mentions the sadr, the chest, he doesn't understood, understand from sadr all the way here, up on this, the top of the chest. He understands sadr as above the navel on this area, in a natural position that doesn't require a, a, a very awkward positioning of the body. Not a single imam takes this position. In fact, it is considered makru, according to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal himself. We have the narration from Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, uh, from the narration of Al-Muzani, who mentions, يَضَعُوا يَدَيْهِ أَسْفَلَ سُرَّ بِقَلِيلٍ وَيُكْرَهُ أَنْ يَجْعَلَهَا عَلَى الصَّدْرِ yeah, so it's disliked to place it high up on the chest. And this is based on a narration from the Prophet himself, in which he forbade takfir. Takfir here is it's a homonym, lafdun mushtarak. So takfir here refers to placing the hands high up on the chest. The reason why this is uh, prohibited in one hadith is because it was an imitation of a particular prayer posture of some of the early Christian sects. And if you look at some of the, for example, the Ethiopian Coptic Christian church, they have a certain manner of prayer that is very similar to how Muslims pray. They have ruku', they have sajda, they have qiyam, and they also have hands on chest like this. Right, so they have that. So this is called fear according to one narration. It is makru. It is disliked to do. And it goes against the fitrah and the natural uh, positioning of the hands or the body. It goes against humility in the prayer and the body's natural position. And if a person says, the, the hadith says, sadr, chest, we say, well, this is the chest too. So are you saying that you have to put your hands like this? It's a very artificial, convoluted position, and it goes against the, the body's natural position. So, 
we also have a narration I want to share with you. Um, you have in the Su'alat ila Imami Ahmad, which is a collection of uh, kind of a Q&A given by the students of Imam Ahmad to Imam Ahmad. There's a narration from Ubaidullah ibn uh, Aizar. He says, uh, I was once performing tawaf around the Kaaba with Sa'id bin Jubair, who was one of Sayyid al-Tabi'een, one of the fuqaha of the Tabi'een of the second generation. And he was held in great awe by others. He saw a man in prayer who placed one of his hands over the other. Uh, and here it means he was doing this kind of thing. And Sa'id bin Jubair struck his hand because he, he had that kind of authority. No one's going to do anything to him. So he goes and smack the man, smacks the man's hands. Now this narration is mentioned and Imam Ahmed commented about it. He said, إِنَّمَا رَآهُ قَرْ وَضَعَ إِحْدَ يَدَيْهِ عَلَى الْأُخْرَى وَجَعَلَهَا عِنْدَ صَدْرِهِ لِيَنَّ ذَلِكَ شِبْهُ التَّكْفِيرِ He saw him place one hand over the other and place them on his chest as that resembles takfir or this placing the hands too high or very high on the chest which is an imitation of some of the Christian groups. So yes, we have below the navel, above the navel, on the, up, the lower part of the chest, or to the sides, we don't have this exaggerated stuff. This is makru, it's disliked, it's an exaggeration. Um, see how much time we have. Okay, so, saying ameen out loud. How many of you grew up hearing ameen out loud? In Sudan? In Sudan, Maliki. Malakum. That's the thing in the modern world, even if the land is traditionally Maliki, everything's all mixed up. So you hear everything, right? But if you go to Sus, for instance, are you going to hear it? Are you not going to hear the Amin out loud in the Sus? If you go to the village, are you going to hear Amin out loud? I would argue probably not. Maybe even in Pakistan today, you'll still hear Amin out loud in some masajid. Some. Some. If you're at a hadith, of course, yeah. right, you're going to hear it. So, and, what, and that's fine, right? The question is, where does it come from, right? If you are from Indonesia, are you going to hear Amin out loud? Of course, you will. So, it is recommended to say Amin behind the Imam at the completion of the Fatiha. Everyone agrees on that, right? The difference is whether it should be uttered audibly or silently. That's the only difference. The Hanafi in Maliki opinion is that Amin was uttered audibly by the Prophet ﷺ in the early days to familiarize the companions with saying Amin after the Fatiha, and after which he would say it silently. There are a lot of hadith like this where Sahaba are transmitting to us things the Prophet ﷺ said in Salat. How did they hear him? It's because he's reading, he's saying these things audibly so they can hear him, even though he is teaching them to say it silently. But he's teaching the Salat first. So this is the Hanafi and Maliki view. So the Shafi'i and Hanbali opinion is that the hadith mentioning the audible Amin establishes it as a norm.
And therefore it is recommended to say Ameen audibly when the Imam recites the Fatiha. So they're going to say, it was done. And by it being done, it becomes a norm, an established practice. Therefore, we would say it's Sunnah to say Ameen out loud after the Fatiha. Now, Imam Malik, rahimahullah, bases his view on the collective practice of Ahlul Medina. Because in his time in Medina, and this is the land of ulama, that wasn't the standard practice. Imam Abu Hanifa is basing his view on certain hadith as well as some reasoning. So he's looking at the hadith that mention the usage of, or the saying Amin and applying some reasoning to this. Because Amin is a dua. When you say Amin, you are basically saying, O oh Allah, answer my prayer. It's ismu fi'l. Amin. O oh Allah, answer my prayer. So as a dua, what's the default of all of your duas in salat? Are they out loud or are they silent? They're all silent. That's the default. That is mentioned in the Quran. Right? In Surah Al-Araf, Allah mentions that, that when you call upon Allah, you call upon Him silently. Dun al-jahri. Right? Without doing it audibly. So he, they, he says, listen, that means a dua. And the default for dua is that it's silent. Therefore, Amin is said silently. He also uses as a, as a proof the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, who says that when the Imam recites غير المغضوب عليهم والضالين say Amin because the angels say it and so does the Imam. How is that a proof for Imam Abu Hanifa? It's the last phrase. The angels say it and so does the Imam. This establishes it, that if the, if the norm was saying Amin out loud, why would he need to tell them that the Imam also says it? The angels say it and so does the Imam. Obviously the Imam says it, like we hear him. If he's reading it out loud, we hear him. So this hadith recorded by Imam al-Nasai is one of the proofs used also within the Hanafi school. So you know, no one's going to come in 2022 and say, hmm, Imam al-Shafi'i, Imam Ahmed are over here arguing that you should say Amin out loud and Imam Malik and Imam Abu Hanifa are here and they have their proofs but we're going to solve this difference of opinion once and for all in 2022. We, we are now going to end the khilaf forever. No one's going to do that. They both have strong arguments from within their own respective methodology, their own usul. So this is just to familiarize ourselves with the rich diversity in our fiqh tradition. We're kind of running out of time here. So I'm going to, I'm going to go very quickly through this one uh, because uh, so the issue of going into sajda. So going into sajda, uh, hands or knees first. Um, in the Hanafi school and in the Shafi'i school, also in a narration from Imam Ahmad, it is preferable for a person to go into sajda with the knees before the hands. And that position is based on the hadith of Wa'il ibn Hujr, 
who says, I saw the Messenger of Allah when he would go into sajda, he would put his knees down before his hands. And when he got up, he would raise his hands before his knees. This is recorded by Imam Abu Dawood, Tirmidhi, and Nasai, and Ibn Majah. The position in the Maliki school, and in one narration from Imam Ahmad, is that it's preferable to go into sajda with the hands before the knees. And this is based on a few hadith, such as إِذَا سَجَدَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلَا يَبْرُكْ كَمَا يَبْرُكْ الْبَعِيرُ وَلْيَضَعَ يَدَيْهِ قَبْلَ When one of you goes into sajda, he should not kneel like a camel, but should place his hands before his knees. So the scholars differ over these narrations. Some say that the first hadith is actually stronger in its chain than the second. And some say it's the other way around. So if they strengthen this one over that one, they'll give preference to that, or vice versa. Um, but at the end of the day, either manner of going into sajda is permissible, and it is what it is. No one's going to end that difference of opinion. It's just a difference over what is preferable, not what is obligatory. Last issue is the raising of the finger in the tashahud. Someone had asked me this a while back. I said, why is this? I see everyone's fingers looking differently in Salat. What's that from? Uh, in the Hanafi school, you point when you say, La ilaha. And you lower it when you say, Illallah. And you do not raise it any other time before or after that. That's it. So the raising is at the negation, the nafi. And you lower it at the point of ithbat, of affirmation, illallah. In the Shafi'i school, it's the opposite. You raise it when you do the affirmation, illallah. And then it's back down, and there's no more movement. In the Hanbali school, the finger is pointed every time you mention lafzul jalala, meaning the divine name of Allah. So... Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala ali Muhammad, right? Each time you're mentioning, right, at-tahiyyatu lillah, right? So every time you mention the name of Allah, you, are, you move it upwards and then put it back down. So depending on the narration of the tashahud, you could count how many times the finger would move, but it's like that. In the Maliki school, it is with the side of the hand on the knee, and the finger moving horizontally, right and left, with a slight curvature. So this is probably the most unique out of all the four schools. It's not like this, it's actually like this, and there's a slight curvature, and the movement, the fuqahase, it is very subtle, it's slight. Uh, I, to, to the best of my knowledge, nowhere in any of the four schools does it recommend doing it in a very uh, vigorous way? In fact, even within the Maliki school, there was, there's a kind of early debate where some of them saw it as less preferable, right? Imam Al-Qadi Abu Bakr bin Arabi argued that one shouldn't do it at all. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it is what it is. But these are the basic differences we have in the positions within the school. Um, there's a couple of other issues, you see. You know, some people when they come up from ruku' سَمِعَ اللَّهُ لِمَنْ حَمِدًا And they put their hands back on the chest. You've seen that? Uh, where does that come from? That's actually a, 
a riwayah, a, a, a narration within the school of Imam Ahmad. So it, it, is, it is valid, it has a basis within the Hanbali school. Uh, and if someone acts on that view, it's absolutely fine. Right? Because all of these things at the end of the day are things that are preferable. So one will be more preferable to one school than another. And if you do one or the other, it doesn't affect the validity of your prayer. And when you understand these things, you understand that we don't have any business policing people's prayer uh, over these matters. You know, you get sometimes people, brother, why are you doing that? You know, if you, the more you know, the less, من كثر علمه قل إنكاره Whoever has more knowledge, their, their criticism or correcting of people becomes less and less. Because they see a makhraj, they see a way for people and what they're doing. They'll say, well, yeah, that's a position, right? It's valid. Uh, well, I missed a slide here. Um, the reasons for moving the finger we didn't discuss. Um, the ulama mentioned different things. Uh, one hadith says that it is, uh, it vanquishes shaitan. Uh, and it's also uh, distinct from sitting. And it reminds one that they are in prayer. If you're sitting in prayer, it looks very ordinary from the outside. But if you move the finger, however you move it, you are reminding yourself that you're in the prayer. And lastly, the, mo the moving of the finger or the pointing with the finger evokes the pointing of the finger made when uttering the shahada. These are some of the wisdoms that the fuqaha mentioned for uh, pointing with the finger or indicating with it. Uh, that's it, alhamdulillah. We, what remains, we have the etiquettes of prayer, the adab, and the mufsidat, those things that invalidate the prayer, the things that are disliked in the prayer, and the things that are permissible in the prayer, uh, and how you break the prayer if you have to interrupt it for whatever reason. Um, then, of course, we have prostration of forgetfulness and travel, few odds and ends before we finish module 5 on Salat um, and with that insha'Allah we will close Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam